We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Hello and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. If my voice sounds a little unfamiliar, it's not because uh, Josh Nelson has a cold or uh, has... Uh, is working on an impressions class or something like that. Uh, my name is Greg Nix. I'm filling in for Josh this week because he's at a wedding, I believe, in Champaign tonight. Champagne and Champagne. So I hope you're out there, Josh, having a good time. Um, but I'll be filling in for this week's episode of the Sox Machine podcast where we'll be looking back at the Field of Dreams game and the rest of the Yankees series um, looking at the minor leagues, of course, in the minor league report, we will be previewing the four-game series at uh, Guaranteed Rate Field with the Oakland A's coming up. And, of course, as always, we'll be answering your questions in P.O. Sox at the end of the show. Um, but before we get to that, any of that, really, joining me is the managing editor of Sox Machine, Jim Margulis. And, Jim, I am very excited to be talking White Sox baseball with you because I feel like uh, we've only ever talked about the White Sox when they've been very bad. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's a pleasure to hear your voice again. I'm sure you're selling yourself short. Uh, many people remember you from your uh, great job on wake up calls uh, in the past. And if you're new to the Sox Machine podcast, that's where uh, Greg is known far and wide. Um, <laughs> for people who miss you, and I'm sure they're they are legion. Uh, what have you been up to? Have you been able to uh, keep track of the White Sox uh, as closely as you did before when they were really really bad? Uh, yes, it's been been very enjoyable keeping up with the White Sox, which is nice. Uh, yeah, I, I haven't had as much time to do podcasts just because I've been sort of busy and more busy in the, the regular work sphere. Um, but and I also got married um, and lots of Congrats. like family. Thank you very much. Um, and lots of just like family stuff going on. So, um, yeah, it's been that weird kind of busy of you're in a pandemic and you're not really going anywhere or doing all that much but somehow you feel very frazzled i don't know if you relate at all but that's where i'm at yeah yeah if, if, if you have to uh do things like uh any kind of major life stage becomes way more complicated <laughs> yeah selling a house buying a house getting married 
uh, yeah, just it's it's uh, everything's a lot harder. You can't count on anybody. Yes, being available the way they used to be. Yeah, right. Did did you get married during the pandemic or was it just before? Uh, it was before. Fortunately, we decided to get it out of the way. So smart decision. We were planning either fall uh, 2019 or spring 2020. It just so happened that Oma Gang had an availability in October of 2019. So we said, sure, why not? That's only five months to plan, but we wanted a small wedding anyway. So let's do it. And sure enough, if we'd waited until March or April, like we were intending to, yeah, it would have been a mess. Right. Yeah. A wise decision in retrospect. Um, <laughs> but at least we're at the point where events are happening again. You guys did uh, a couple weeks back, you did the tailgate, um, which mm-hmm. looked super awesome. And I, as a West Coaster, am very much looking forward to the West Coast tailgate that Josh was teasing as well next season. So hopefully we'll be past all the pandemic pandemic stuff by then the delta variant um and we'll be able to have just a a regular old good time in san diego uh that would be fun agreed um with that said uh let's talk about a little bit of baseball because it was a pretty eventful uh back half of the week as white Sox fans probably know and it started off in pretty spectacular fashion with the field of dreams game in dyersville iowa if you're living under a rock uh we could catch you up by basically saying that tim anderson was the star of the day uh hit a walk-off home run in into the cornfields of Iowa, uh, beautiful setting, pretty incredible end to the game. I would say that just generally speaking, the entire presentation um, exceeded my expectations, which are often fairly low for things that MLB does and particularly extremely commercial things that MLB does. Um, but mm-hmm. this, this I thought was a really good one, um, and the play definitely lived up to the setting, I would say. Yeah, I, I wrote about it on Sox Machine, and my impression was, you know, early on with the, I should say, like Kevin Costner centric presentation of the game, that was a little odd, just because he's, you know, he was okay in the movie, and and I think you know his ability to uh, pull off a convincing baseball player or former baseball player in roles helps him out, but you know, in terms of like sheer charisma you know magnetism on the screen i don't know if he has that necessarily so when he's just kind of walking by himself in a cornfield it's it's there's the strength of recognition and saying like oh yeah he's uh, ray kinsella but when it comes to just like doing more than that you know more than the recognition part of it more than i know him from the role in this movie that was filmed uh maybe a quarter mile away it it, there's not a whole lot to uh, I, i guess hang on. And I, I would say that that also extended to the inning that he was in the broadcast booth. Like he's not uh, a really uh, compelling speaker. He doesn't have a whole lot of uh, dynamics in his voice. So it was just, you know, that, that part of it I thought was a little bit weak or, or kind of wore off quickly. But then I think the, the game took over the presentation, the drone shots, I think were really appealing, just capturing the, the sky as it went from uh, late afternoon to dusk to night. Like I, I thought they did a great job of uh, capturing just the, the 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 climate, the environmental elements of the game, and yeah, I, I think we, Josh and I talked about this a little bit, but I think this is where you see like Fox's experience pay off. Uh, ESPN couldn't have done it; they they couldn't have gotten out of their own way. TBS is pretty weak when it comes to like their national broadcast partners. Fox is the one that knows what it's doing with big events, knows how to get out of the way, especially with Tim Anderson's walk off homer. Like the way that was shot. 
the aerial uh, view of the fireworks, uh, Joe Buck calling the uh, home run, the result of the game, and then just letting the game speak for itself and everybody could put their own soundtrack over it and didn't hear, hear Buck's voice. Like after he rounded second base, it was just all visual, spectacular. It was basically like a visual feast. And that's, I think, what Fox really excels at. So that's what I think uh, I'm going to take away from it is just the the visual elements. And I know people complain about Joe Buck and people complain about John Smoltz, but I really wasn't paying attention to anything they said. Uh, aside from an occasional quote here or there, I was just kind of more taken by the by the environment, the backdrop, the way the fans were locked in um, and listening to how the noises were different from having a different environment with only 8,000 people. There's just a lot to take in that had nothing to do with what the broadcasters were saying. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think I have certainly criticized Joe Buck in the past, but I think you're right that he did give that last moment space to breathe. And I think in general with this, it was, it was, sort of a tough tightrope t- to be asking him to walk of like, you know, presentationally it could have felt very much like ESPN Sunday night baseball, which I think uh, you have, have very aptly compared to, you know, a talk show with a baseball happen, baseball game happening in the background. And certainly mm-hmm. um, it would have been easy for it to feel like that with, uh, with Kevin Costner, particularly. And in that inning, maybe it did feel like a talk show because he wouldn't stop talking. But otherwise I felt like they did a good job of keeping the action on the field. And luckily the action was good enough to support that because I mean, the, you know, Obviously, the Anderson walk-off, but there were plenty of highlights before that, and we also have learned, you know, that this was the most watched regular season baseball game in 16 years. Um, so obviously, it was appealing to people in some way, and I think for all the, uh, you know, griping we hear about ratings and stuff like that, it, it was nice to attract an audience to a regular season baseball game between two good teams and one of those good teams happening to be the White Sox. Uh, I feel like was was awesome for us as fans and for the way they came through as for us as well. I guess my sort of question for you looking forward is like, would you be interested in watching? They've said they're going to do this game again next year. Like, what is your interest level in that game in a general sense? And particularly if the White Sox aren't going to be involved in it? It's a good question because I think if the White Sox weren't involved in this game, I think I would have been, well, assuming the White Sox weren't playing at the same time, if the White Sox were had one of the night games, I probably would have been watching that and flipping over. But I think the uh, the groundswell, or at least the, the very positive reception on social media probably would have dragged me in if I wasn't, if I wanted to take the night off from baseball and didn't think it was going to be worth my while. I just wonder how much of the appeal is novelty or how much, you know, will wear off. I mean, I think having a game there every once in a while or every year is worth watching. Like it's worth doing. It's nice. It's a place where baseball is very hard to find given the insane blackout policy there. So I think it was nice to do like Iowa favor and put it in the spotlight for once. And you'd hope that uh, this game kind of draws attention to uh, just the plight of Iowa when it comes to not being able to watch major league games. But just when you think about, you know, the the whole question of like, how are they going to pull this off? What are exactly are they doing here? What's going to make it special? 
Um, you know, how are they going to tie in Field of Dreams? And then the, the game itself just being such a thrill and having the stars show up. I mean, like if Major League Baseball had to script a game, you know, having Jose Abreu and Eloy Jimenez and Aaron Judge going deep and Giancarlo Stanton going deep and Tim Anderson winning the game. Like if, if Aaron Judge couldn't win it, they'd want Tim Anderson to. Like they couldn't have drawn it up any better. Uh, Sebi Zavala's homer, probably not a big priority for them, but that was cool as well. Uh, but you know, if you go to a game, you know, another game, you're going to lose the novelty of like, what's this going to look like? If they do all the same tricks, it's going to be appealing again, but not the same magical aspect of like, holy crap, baseball is doing this right. Which I think was a big part of the social media draw. And then just, if it turns into like a Cubs Cardinals and the Cardinals win like nine to one, like how much of, yeah, then I think it puts the, the, the focus back on what you know, the broadcasters are saying, and maybe that's not the strength that uh, you know, baseball fans really equate with a Fox broadcast. So I think that's a, a, the tough thing to pull off. I think I'd rather see it you know, maybe be part of a regular rotation or maybe be part of you know, multi-neutral uh, site game setting, kind of like the NHL does with the stadium series, except I think with baseball, uh, you know, that, you know, w- with baseball strength of having so many different fields and, and not needing to adhere to standard dimensions, I think they could have some fun with it. Yeah, that, that sort of leads into my next question, which is like, what comes to mind for you as possible art alternatives to the Field of Dreams game if it was going to become part of a rotation? Well, I think you can take it a few different ways. You know, I'm curious when it comes like the economics of creating a park and, you know, especially like an 8,000 seat park that can, you know, has major league lighting, is suitable for major league broadcast. Like that might be tougher than we think, or you require more money and resources than a, uh, than, than a league or a network might want to put into a game that is once a year or once every three years. But uh, an idea I saw floating around was like, well, you have some Negro Leagues parks like Rickwood Field where they play the Rickwood Classic, the Birmingham Barons do every year. And it's, that's an equally beautiful event where everybody gets uh, you know, all geared up for it with uh, throwback uniforms and the reporters and then like Kurt Bloom will wear like old fat, old timey clothes and suspenders and fedoras. And that's, that's great. Same thing with uh, Hinchcliffe Stadium in New Jersey, which is a, uh, a Negro League stadium that they're trying to restore. Like it'd be a good uh use of Major League Baseball's efforts to help restore that stadium and then put it to use when they're not playing there. And then I think, you know, they could go crazy with it. Like, the yeah, kind of like, uh, I'm thinking like with the Sandlot, and you can obviously put a game in the Sandlot, but if you could put a game like in, say, um, you know, Central Park, Grant Park, something like that, where you can just set up a stadium and have like the city right there. I'm thinking like, kind of like video game settings, how, uh, when they do like, uh, I'm thinking like golf games or, uh, even some baseball games with custom stadiums or, or like Tony Hawk games where like, let's throw this, uh, this park or this golf course into a crazy urban setting. And you just have that backdrop right there. Like theoretically they could, uh, for like, you know, one day a year, uh, you know, Hawaii was an idea I saw floated around, uh, Alaska with a midnight sun game and, and having just been to Alaska and seeing, uh, the beautiful parks there and the backdrops there. Like I would endorse that idea. I think there are a lot of ways they can go, especially if they look at say their, you know, and this is kind of unfortunate, but like with minor league contraction and some of the, the stadiums or markets, uh, 
towns they've uh, said goodbye to in Utah and Colorado and Montana um, with the with the closing of the uh, Pioneer League. I wonder if there's some ability to like, let's put it, you know, they, they can't drop a game to like say Arches National Park, but like something equivalent of that, just like, holy crap, here's the Utah back, you know, here, here's the just Utah landscape or the Montana landscape in the background of this game. And that way you throw a bone to some markets that maybe you weren't so kind to. I, I think there are some directions they can, they can go where they can, they can serve some big cities. They can serve some places that don't have major league baseball and some major events. Uh, that kind of brings to mind the old barnstorming uh, days of, uh, you know, like the hundred years ago. I, I think they could have some fun. Yeah. I think it's funny that you saying that last sentence of you think they could have some fun. And I think this is where the concern is, is like, that's not MLB's strong suit, generally speaking. Um, mm-hmm. They tend to to sort of smother fun in some ways. Um, I, the, the sort of Central Park idea is interesting. I hadn't thought of that. I think National Parks is is a good idea as what and as is the Negro league stadiums. I guess the thing that I'm sort of curious about is like, not that I think field of dreams is a a particularly, you know, great movie. Like I think it's pretty good uh, as a lot of people do, but it's, it's good at what it does, you know, but it's not, I think you wrote about it very well of it's not all things for all people. Um, But -hmm. I think it was useful in serving to like ground this and like, there is a reason for this happening. Um, Mm -hmm. even if that reason is sort of flimsy and I wonder if it'll have the same specialness or it could have more specialness maybe if it isn't that reason and they just find the right place to do it, you know, if it is the New Orleans park or whatever. But I do wonder if it needs something to, to ground it as far as a reason why they're having a game in that place, you know? Yeah. I think, you know, maybe they could just treat the name as a franchise, maybe, Um, you know, just, so you get some name recognition, but you're not always just going back to the same movie. Like, hey, remember when we shot this movie? It was 33 years ago instead of 32 this time. And we've talked to Timothy Busfield instead of Kevin, <laughs> Kevin Costner. Just, you know, when, if they keep going back to the well in Dyersville, I think then it could get old and then it kind of wrings all the fun out of it until there's like just a husk left, a uh, corn joke. <laughs> but when it comes to like, say like, you know, with Negro League stadiums, you know, we're, you know, there were baseball dreams lived out there. I think that's a way you kind of extend it and say like, you know, whether it's, you know, the, the idea of players playing where they could, you know, that that's, I think one shortcoming of the of field of dreams is it did not have like Josh Gibson coming out of the cornfield it had Gil Hodges, but not like Oscar Charleston, who would have been very well served by having a field where everybody could, you know, live out their dreams freely um, that's a case where I think they could say like field of dreams, Negro league edition, basically with like, say if they went to Rickwood field or, you know, you could extend the idea if you build it, he will come or they will come to like a, a park in Montana or Alaska. Just, I, I think you could, you could maybe just franchise the name out to where you still have the connection. People seeing the listing say, Oh, I remember that. That was fun. Let me check in. Um, and then just the idea is basically like, a really well-produced game in a beautiful backdrop that you don't see and I, or, or, you know, people may not know about or people um, might've seen, but never thought a baseball game would be staged there and just want to see what it's all about. I think that's a great idea. I think it's so good that there is no chance that MLB will do it and we'll be back at the <laughs> field of dreams game uh, for the next 25 years in Dyersville, Iowa. But um 
here's hoping, you know, that that would be very cool, I think, and would be a great showcase for baseball as this this last game was. Um, Unfortunately, the rest of the Yankees White Sox series after the off day on Friday, uh, which was a little bit odd, threw me off of my baseball watching rhythm. But um, the rest of the series didn't go great necessarily. Uh, The White Sox lost both Saturday and Sunday. Saturday's game, Dylan Cease pitched like Dylan Cease. Uh, The offense did some good things, but Liam Hendricks had some prominent issues that carried over from the Field of Dreams games that we'll talk about uh, in just a second. And then on Sunday, uh, Lucas Giolito struggled against the Yankees lineup, um, as I guess a lot of pitchers are want to do. They have a lot of great hitters right now, but uh, not particularly encouraging and sort of a, a just a little bit of a letdown game. It felt like, um, generally speaking, after the uh, after the sort of high points of the Field of Dreams games um, or game, I should say. So I guess let's let's start with the most pressing thing here and probably the the thing that people are most the the hottest topic in White Sox fandom and that's Liam Hendricks who has not looked good for definitely his last two appearances giving up 3 home runs in his last two appearances um now 11 home runs in 50 innings on the season this isn't quite what the White Sox signed up for, Jim. So where are you at on Liam Hendricks right now? I think, you know, I kind of wrestled with it early in the year when there are very few conventional save opportunities for him and he wasn't doing a uh, exactly a clean job uh, with the few that he'd gotten and uh, Tony La Russa wasn't using him in non-save situations or uh, unorthodox save situation. So it was, there's a lot of frustration setting in and I was just trying to kind of wrap my mind around like, what's, you know, what's the, what was the point of all this? And then he got into a groove and then the mid season foreign substance ban kind of kicked in and he seemed like somebody who was, when you look at the spin rate, he did take a dip, but not like a James Karinchik type dip or not like a Dylan Cease or Lucas Giolito type slide. It was, more muted. I just wonder when you have like somebody whose success last year, um, and then like even the half season with Oakland when he took over the closer role before then, was so predicated on like this one pitch being, you know, basically like his fastball was the best fastball in the game when you factor in like velocity and carry and extension, all the extra stuff that went along with it. Like, you know, maybe a Roldis Chapman has a better fastball when it comes to just like power, but just the way he. Uh, yeah, the combination of the elements of his fastball and the way he knew how to use it uh, made it one of the best fastballs in the game, maybe if not the most effective fastball of 2020. So I think when you uh, are so reliant on that one pitch and throwing it 70% of the time, and then like something takes a little bit of edge off it, whether it's just a little less spin rate, a little less carry, um, you maybe just a little bit less, his velocity's fine. So it's not that, but just the, he's battled some extension issues, um, some spin rate drops, and that pitch is just like a little less special. Then I think it requires a little bit of a retooling. I think we're seeing like the equivalent of Lucas Giolito. He, he kind of went through the same thing where just after the, the, you know, Josh Donaldson, like the ball's not sticky anymore. Like, uh, you know, while that taunt, um, you know, kind of was more or less uh, meaningless when it came to just the season success of both teams and, and, and just how the twins did, but just, there was a, a enough truth uh, to it to get under Giolito's skin. 
you know, Giolito realized like, oh, I just can't get by with like high fastballs and floating my change up wherever it pleases. I need to actually execute a bit better. I think there's something, you know, along those lines happening with Hendricks too, to where like he needs more out of a slider, needs more out of his curveball, needs a little bit better location on his fastball if, you know, a guy like Aaron Judge is expecting it. And there are some growing pains that go along with it. So it's, uh, you know, it, he just happens to be picking the most uneasy form of struggling because like Aaron Bummer can struggle the way he struggles is just hitters pounding the ball in front of home plate uh, and then bad luck begets bad luck or you know poor execution and the inning slides downhill but at least there's like a little bit of a warning that things might be going awry and you might need a strikeout guy warming up behind him but with Hendricks you know can be just one swing of the bat uh, from a guy even you might not be expecting that changes the inning or in the case of like the field of dreams game, two swings of the bat when you feel like you have a significant enough cushion. So it is something I think that uh, requires some careful treading some, you know, it's a delicate situation that requires like not panic, but also I think when you have a home run issue, uh, you do test the tolerance a little bit. If uh, you know, you give up four homers over the course of three games and uh, just you get a little bit of shell shocks setting in. So it is something that Tony LaRusa has to tread a little bit carefully with right now. He's, he's sticking by Hendricks and saying like, you know, he's our guy. Um, you know, he's as mad about it as anybody. He, you're going to see that intensity and, uh, you know, I, I can more or less believe it. And this is where I think, you know, uh, La having, uh, three decades, four decades of managerial experience, uh, pays off. Yeah. I wondered as well, if, Maybe his intensity is not particularly helpful in this situation, though. Like, I, I mean, he's been good enough for long enough that you give him credit for doing things his way. But it feels to me that another side effect of of that of sort of what you're talking about with maybe the uh, the sticky stuff and the spin rate is is he just doesn't feel like he is commanding the ball very well. He's still not walking guys. So like the control is fine, but it seems like in the zone, he doesn't have super crisp command of those fastballs. And that's, that's one of the readings reasons why they're getting hammered is he's just leaving, you know, some of them too much in the zone when he wants to go right at the top of it. Um, and I don't necessarily trust a guy who is, is so intense that maybe he can verge on overthrowing. That's not, necessarily the mindset I want in somebody who is like trying to tailor their command. So I mm -hmm. think, I mean, I expect him to pitch better. Um, but I don't know that I'm going to feel particularly confident in Liam Hendricks at, at really any point for the rest of the season. And I'd say in the near future, it'd be great to kind of keep him out of one run games until he has a couple better, outings under his belt I mean what do you think is there is there anything to be done with the I, I don't think Tony La Russa is going to say anything else than what he has already said he's going to be supported but I wonder do you think we'll see any sort of changes in in the usage pattern at all uh, I think he wants to probably get you know a save or two under the under his belt to not create panic if he wants to also try Craig Kimbrell there I think that might be ultimately the goal of what LaRusso wants to do is not just, you know, look for a closer, but just look for a situation where, um, you know, if Kimbrell can close, great. If he's a better matchup for the hitters coming up, cool. If it's a situation where Hendricks has saved two games in a row and he doesn't want to 
burn out a guy the way we've seen some closers uh, burn out in the postseason, you know, hit a wall, then I think that's a case where he wants the flexibility without being second-guessed. So I think ultimately, if, if Hendricks allows, like I think he'd like to get a couple saves under his belt to feel like uh, he's back to more or less normal. And then any uh, experiment with flexibility would be more that more pursuing flexibility rather than saying, Oh, he's, he's lost faith in Hendrick. So he's looking for a closer. Here's hoping Kimbrell doesn't blow it or else he's really going to have emergency on his hands. I think that's what he's going to be trying to do. And, and we've seen him in the past, like go back to a, a struggling reliever to try to erase doubts. And I, I think that'll be the same here, but you mentioned the, the screaming thing. And I, I go back to thinking about when the White Sox signed him and, and, you know, listening to, yeah, remembering watching him against the White Sox in the wild card series and then listening to the uh, the media, uh, the, the media rounds, the interviews and thinking like he's a really charming fellow and he's somebody you want to see do well. And he, you know, and if he turned into a lockdown closer, like saving 46 out of 48 games and, and being like a, a true force, like, you know, he's going to be a fan favorite. Just it, it's going to be, you know, the a, a love affair. But I also remember just, you know, with Jose Abreu hitting the slam off Grant Ball for uh, his rookie season and thinking like, it's really fun to beat a screaming Australian. Like it just, I'm thinking like guys like Jose Valverde and Fernando Rodney, it's it's really fun to beat the demonstrative closers. Like it's fun when you're on the other side to see them fail, like to see that backfire. (laughs) That that did stick in my mind as well. So when you mentioned that, just, yeah, it's, it's possible that, you know, when you're so invested in, powering through things and, and seeing red and, and uh, grinding your teeth to the gums to, uh, uh, to fire through things. I do wonder if there is a, a diminishing returns at some point to where just like, no, you actually have to, it is about pitching and not just sheer force of will and fury. Yeah. I, I just think it'd be nice if maybe he had like 3% Mark Burley in him where <clears throat> maybe he loses half a mile on the fastball, but he's also just, uh, you're, you're confident he's going to shake it off and, and just move on to the next guy. Um, but I, I do think you make a good point that sort of Larusa has experience with this kind of thing. And I, I think the last thing the team needs is some sort of like closer controversy. Um, and I think that as long as Hendricks rebounds in a reasonable way, I think, uh, that, LaRusso will be able to avoid that. I have confidence in that way. Um, one thing that maybe I don't have as much confidence in LaRusso, and I think uh, a lot of White Sox Twitter was uh, a flutter today, is he kind of had another little bump in the road, um, or I should say yesterday, if you're listening to this. Um, he had a little bump in the road Sunday with a challenge where it looks like Tim Anderson had beat out the second out of a double play ball. Um, when the throw pulled Luke Voigt off the bag, the replay was pretty conclusive that Anderson hit the bag while Voigt was in the air, but there was no challenge from the White Sox and, uh, they sort of went on to lose the game in quiet fashion. And, and I don't, it would be a stretch to say that particular moment is going to change the flow of the rest of the game because it still would have been two outs with runner on first. But I do think this is another sort of little concerning blip that LaRusa has had with things that are new to the game since he last managed and with challenges specifically, this has happened mm-hmm. a couple of times. Do you have an issue? Um, or do you, I guess I should say, do you think Tony LaRusa has an issue with challenges? And if so, how serious is it? 
it seems like he does um just based on his post game quotes saying that you know he heard from the replay room that looked like a tie and usually those don't go their way and he has a point or like you know it doesn't go the way of changing the call when it looks like uh you know you when you can form an argument or you can look at a frame of a, an angle and say Oh, the call's going to stand. Like, that could very well be the toe is still in the bag. We can't change. Like, generally speaking, he probably has a point in saying that, uh, yeah, the uh, w- when you have a frame like that, it uh, generally doesn't go well. But, you know, being the seventh inning of a game where uh, they can use their challenge and then still ask for challenges later uh, when there is a play that warrants it, there was no harm in doing so. So it's it's like he understands, I guess, the results or like the likelihoods maybe um, of, of an outcome. But when it comes to like the leverage and the idea of, um, you know, that it's probably better to be too aggressive with the challenge than too passive because the odds of two challenge-worthy plays happening in a game are rare. Kind of like, yeah, I would say it's you know more common than uh, deploying both catchers and losing one to injury, but kind of the same thought. Like uh, most times I would say probably like, uh, this is pulling a number out of my, my just thin air, but I would say like 98 times out of a hundred. Like if you deploy both catchers in the game, the starting catcher is going to make it through the rest of the game without incident. I mean, we saw Zach Collins take a foul tip to the throat. <laughs> he stayed in the game. So uh, catchers are pretty tough. So if you use one of them to pinch hit, you're not going to have to, call on Danny Mendick to catch two innings. And I think it's kind of the same thing with the replay. Like occasionally I can think of maybe like three games, maybe in the, over the course of watching it where like, Oh, glad the, uh, glad the other team burned their replay because they can't challenge that one. But I think it's pretty rare. So they had the challenge in the first inning where uh, it looked like uh, Cesar Hernandez might have beat out a bunt single, but TBS didn't do a good job of showing a conclusive angle of the replay. They kind of had like a, a casual interest in the replay because they were still doing first inning plot establishment stuff. Uh, but that's a case where like, you know, best case scenario, there's one out and one on in the first inning. Like that's not really a high leverage move, but you don't challenge in that situation in order to challenge a closer play in the seventh inning when you know that. Um, if you lose that one, you can still have the opportunity to challenge a close play where umpires have doubts afterwards because that's the way the rules are. So it does seem like it, it does harken back to his earlier, like his, his first month or two in, in the dugout to where it seemed like he had part of a mind of still being a league employee. <laughs> like when he was like chastising uh, Lucas Giolito for, for uh, ragging on the umps from the dugout. Like, why are you taking the ump side? Like you don't work for the league anymore. <laughs> it's kind of the same thing here. Like, well, we don't want to bother New York with an unnecessary replay request. Like, no, that's, that's not your job anymore. Your job is to uh, leverage things as best as possible. And uh, generally speaking, he's been good at that over the course of his career. And we've seen him clean up a lot of things, uh, in 2021 baseball, it just took him a couple months to do so. But, but I think this is one of those situations to where, like I'm thinking of that ESPN broadcast where they were kind of framing LaRusa's struggles as like hidden genius. Like people thought he couldn't manage and look at him now, look at how they're winning. He must be doing something right. And it's like, no, he did a lot of things wrong, but it's a long season he can get better. And I think this is one of those cases where he did make a mistake where other managers wouldn't like, 
on Twitter, uh, the Yankees account John Boy, a lot of people know him, but if you don't, he's like these uh, famous for his uh, re- replay breakdowns from a Yankee perspective on Twitter. Uh, but he uh, he asked like during the Anderson play, like, does Tony La Russa ever challenge? <laughs> he just answered that, you know, asked that honestly. And, and he, he didn't say it as a joke. Like he asked for honest uh, opinions, not having seen many White Sox games. And most people were saying, no, he's he's kind of you know, loath to in a way if, uh, if there or some challenge opportunities pass him by. And so I think there is a tendency for him to do that. And I'm hoping that this is one of those situations to where it's stark enough to where he'll look at it. He'll talk to his coaches and say like, yeah, there's really no reason uh, not to challenge. So next time we'll clean it up. We'll know from the seventh inning on if we have doubts, if there's a shred of doubt about a play that can change the game or put a tying run at the plate or tying run on base, we need to do that. I hope so. I hope you're right. Because every time, you know, one of these little things pop up, I mean, the White Sox could very well win the World Series, and I think I'm perfectly willing to give Tony Larusa credit for things like handling the bullpen, um, or at least the personalities in the bullpen, uh, in a way that has seemed productive for them. But every time something like this happens, I just get more and more sure that whatever happens in the postseason, Tony Larusa is going to do at least one thing that will drive me absolutely insane in the moment, um, whether it works out or not. Yeah. And then, you know. It's just not super comforting, and I just would like it if he sort of could tighten up these moments. Um, also, because they are, they do give grist to this sort of mill of the Larusa truthers against the Larusa criticizers. You know where uh, it's it it is all some sort of five dimensional chess that he's playing, and it's like no, he just this was clearly a mistake, and it was a frustrating mistake, and okay, if we can admit that it's a mistake, maybe it won't happen again, um, is is where I'm coming from. So I hope mm-hmm. you're right, I guess. Yeah, well, the last time he was in a World Series, he had that phone issue with the Cardinals to where he called the wrong lever because they heard him wrong. So, and they won the World Series. It so was all part of the plan, Jim. Here's where you're wrong. Yes. They won the World Series, didn't they? Yep. So uh, the Cardinals showed that they could survive one... Uh, mishap where people were happy to paint it as a guy who was past his prime. So there you yeah, go. Well, I mean, to be fair, the White Sox have survived about a dozen of these mishaps so far this season and are in a pretty good position still. So maybe he is just, you know, crazy like a fox. What do I know? As long as they keep winning, right? <laughs> um, yep. So last thing just to, to talk about as we conclude our discussion of this Yankees series is the state of the rotation, I think. And I, th- that's mostly just because I don't didn't know where to fit it, where else to fit it in. But we saw Lance Lynn pitch, pitch pretty decently in Iowa, I think, getting out of there with three runs allowed as we saw the ball carrying later in the game, I think is acceptable. Dylan Cease had a very Dylan Cease game, five innings, three runs. Gilito kind of struggled, four innings, 101 pitches. Um, I would say he did not pitch pretty particularly well um, and, and was sort of just gutting through it. And then we have G- uh, Carlos Rodon still on the IL, although Tony La Russa said before the game that he was hoping Rodon would be back for the Toronto series, which starts a week from Monday. Um, 
We have Dil- uh, Dallas Keuchel not pitching particularly well over his last few starts either. So I just want to gauge you kind of where you are in terms of your rotation confidence power rankings. Like how would you rate right now those five starters in order of confidence? Well, I think, you know, Lance Lynn is number one with a bullet um, just because he's there. There are really no signs of apparent weakness. And even if you, uh, like you said, just uh, with the way the ball is flying in uh, Iowa, and I know they, they, they tried to mirror the dimensions of old Comiskey Park with the way the field was laid out. But uh, having seen uh, the White Sox historical home run numbers over the years and how long it took them to hit 30 homers in a season <laughs> and how long it took them to hit 40 homers in the season, <laughs> I don't think uh, it played like yeah, old Comiskey It was did. not so, a dead um, ball yeah. era field, that's for sure. Yeah, so I, I think that's a case where just you, you survive um, you survive in advance. It, it was the strategy there. But Giolito, I'm right now with Rodon being uncertain and just you know wanting to see what he looks like after his IL stint, I would still put Giolito second. But I also want to see what Giolito's velocity looks like next time out because he came out kind of throwing low 90s or like spending a lot of time like around 91, 92. When in his better starts recently, he's throwing like 94, 96. And when he's like throwing 91, 92, and he doesn't have like a great feel for his changeup uh, and he has to rely on his slider, like his slider has made strides, but just it's not going to result in a performance that you expect from Giolito or that like Zips expected from Giolito when it projected him to, to be the best pitcher in baseball. So, you know, it, it I want to see what he looks like next time. Maybe it was a dead arm start. Maybe it was a little bit odd, but you know, see, seeing those velocity numbers and seeing him like rack up 60 pitches through three innings or into the third inning and, and 80 through four and, you know, just or, you know, up to a hundred through four. Just, it, I was looking at those numbers and thinking like, man, they should probably pull him after three. This doesn't look good. <laughs> and uh, sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's not like sometimes pitchers bounce back. Other times they go on the injured list right after it's usually a, uh, yeah, maybe not a red flag, but it's a, a flag worth paying attention to, kind of like a check engine light on the car. Like sometimes it, it's nothing, and yeah, sometimes it's a gas cap, and sometimes it costs you a couple thousand dollars. So uh, that's kind of uh, where I'm looking at Giolito. And then Cease, I think, is, yeah, the Yankees are a tough assignment just because they have play discipline, and his mechanics can get out of whack. But he he grew, I think, over the outing the way you want to see. Like he improved. It wasn't just... Uh, gutting through he just he had he thrown say like the second inning like he threw the fourth like he might have been able to go six instead of five like he just had one too many inefficient innings but he had ironed it out like he'd figured out like a different way to approach it like he'd been able to lean on his fastball a little bit to his breaking ball command improve then he got some clutch change-ups against lefties so he's got a few different ways to go so even though it was frustrating, it was still ultimately encouraging when it comes to just, uh, I guess, season-long development of a guy who is uh, uh, you know, still kind of a fragile candidate for a postseason start. It was ultimately, like, serviceable. So I, I think those are my top three right now. Rodon is just a question mark. I think if, if Rodon just shows that, like, he needed a rest or is, like, a program to break, uh, then he would be number two. Yeah, I think I'm generally with you. I think... This is kind of an unfortunate time for the rotation, which has been just incredible all season to look a little bit rickety, even if that kind of rickety is still, you know, five innings of of a winnable ball game. That's useful, but 
with the struggles at the back end of the bullpen that sort of compounds the problem of you know there's there's not going to be much alternative to Liam Hendricks and Craig Kimbrell if they're struggling after a certain point because we've already had Aaron Bummer and Michael Kopech and Jose Ruiz and Ryan Tabera pitch over you know which we've seen at like four pitchers over three the three previous innings um so it's not kind of unfortunate timing for that but I think um we'll we'll hopefully there is enough time left in the season for that confidence to be rebuilt in some of those guys and hopefully we will see uh Carlos Rodon next week in Toronto that would be a very very welcome uh scene for sure um well that is it for our review of the Field of Dreams game and the Yankees series. We're going to take a quick break, uh, and then Jim will be back with the Minor League Report. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the Meyer League Report. We'll start in Charlotte, where Gavin Sheets aside, I think the Sox more or less have promoted the guys they'll need. Sheets went 8 for 27 with two homers and three doubles over his six games back in AAA, so he appears hell-bent on getting a little more consideration in September. Guys like Blake Rutherford and Yermin Mercedes joined him with monster games on Sunday in a 14-7 win over Jacksonville, but they haven't been the same kind of reliable performers outside of the odd outburst. Pitching-wise, it seems like we should expect what we've seen from Jonathan Stever and Jimmy Lambert to be the story the rest of the way, and Kyle Crick has replaced Nick Turley as the off-roster veteran who would be the most likely to get a look. But otherwise, I'll probably be looking at guys like Micah Adolfo, Bennett Souza, and Cade McClure to see how they end up faring in their first exposures to AAA. Adolfo's doing okay, batting 286 with a 333 on on-base percentage and a 464 slugging percentage over eight games thus far. Souza has been stingy with the walks, and McClure survived his first start. Yasmani Grandal's rehab stint in Birmingham is off to a decent start, although Rain has meddled with it the last two days. He's 4 for 11 with a walk and three strikeouts over four games, but he's yet to catch a full nine innings. Besides Grandal, the thing to watch with Birmingham is how they deploy playing time around the infield now that Lennon Sosa is a baron. Justin Jersley has been rotating Sosa, Romy Gonzalez, and Yolbert Sanchez around second, third, and short thus far. Sosa is 4 for 16 with 3 strikeouts in his first taste of double A. Sanchez's average has regressed all the way to 342. Gonzalez, meanwhile, is one homer away from Birmingham's first 2020 season since Aaron Rowand in 2000. 
The Barons pitching staff has lost a lot of luster since the promotion of McClure and the trade of Connor Pilkington. Jason Billis is the main attraction in the rotation, and he struggled to post two encouraging starts in a row at AA. That's still more pitching than Winston-Salem has because the Dash promoted Taylor Varnell, Davis Martin, and Johan Dominguez to fill a vacancies in Birmingham without receiving equal prospects in return from below. At least the Dash's lineup is a little deeper. Jose Rodriguez took Sosa's spot at shortstop, and the 20-year-old shook off a golden sombrero in his debut to finish the week 7-for-17 with a homer. As long as he stays healthy, you have to consider a season of success no matter how he fares the rest of the way. Yolki Cespedes is also raking. He overcame early rust to raise his OPS to 850 with 17 doubles, 7 homers, and 10 stolen bases over 45 games. So there's some individual talent on offense. The lineup as a whole is underwhelming, though, and with the lack of pitching, the Dash have lost 7 straight. They're in better shape than the Canapolis Cannonballers, who have lost 11 in a row. The pitching's been borderline non-existent all season, and I don't think we're going to say that Andrew Dahlquist, Matthew Thompson, or Jared Kelly mastered the level by the end of the year. Take that inconsistency and pair it with a lineup that is missing Rodriguez, and a 26-64 record is the result. Brian Ramos continues to be a positive story, and it's been fun to see Masail Gonzalez emerge from obscurity as a 12th round pick in the 2019 draft and force a promotion out of Arizona to A-ball, where he's had some games. The rest of Sunday's lineup didn't have an OPS above 700. The hope is that some of the recent collegiate draft picks can address the experience gap on both sides of the ball before the end of the season. Speaking of recent draft picks, Colson Montgomery is off to a strong start in the Arizona Complex League, hitting 273, 406, 364 with three walks against four strikeouts over 27 plate appearances. Second rounder Wes Kath has a little more swing and miss in his game, but he's notched his first homer while hitting 320. Wilfred Veras has also had some big games, so the ACL infield is in good shape. The outfield is in rougher condition, at least among the younger talent. Gonzalez made his way out, but Benjamin Bailey hasn't been able to capture any of his magic from 2019. Most of the recently selected arms are throwing an inning or two at a time, so we're still getting a handle on who's doing what. But here's where I'll note that fifth-round high school pitcher Tanner McDougall opened his pro career with an immaculate inning on Saturday, striking out the side on nine pitches. To get some context for the feat, a White Sox pitcher hasn't done that at the major league level since Sloppy Thurston in 1923. And speaking of highly anticipated pitching debuts, we'll wrap it up in the Dominican Summer League, where Norhe Vera struck out the side in his first pro inning of work. He should dominate to that extent because he's 21 years old and too experienced for the level, but as we've seen from Luis Robert and Yolbert Sanchez, high-profile Cuban signings tend to ride out their first year in the DSL for tax purposes. Looking at the week ahead, the Charlotte Knights return home to host Norfolk, the Barons play the Tennessee Smokies in the Smokies, the Dash head to Hickory, and Kannapolis starts a two-week homestand with the series against Down East. All right, welcome back to the main part of the show. Greg Nick's still here with Jim, and we're going to be previewing, previewing the Oakland series coming up. It's a four-game series at Guaranteed Rate Field. Your pitching probables for this week are former White Sox farmhand Frankie Montas versus Dallas Keuchel in the first game. The second game, former White Sox farmhand Chris Bassett versus Reynaldo Lopez filling in again. Uh, the third game is Cole Irvin, who's having a very nice season, uh, maybe a Rookie of the Year candidate in the AL versus Lance Lynn. And then the uh, last game on Thursday is James Caprellian, also having a good season in his first year in the A's rotation versus Dylan Cease. Uh, and Jim, I sort of stack up those two, I think, 
Montas and, and Bassett, who made the all-star team, are pretty clear advantages on paper for the A's over Keuchel and Lopez. I think the White Sox have the advantage in the back two games. Uh, what are you thinking? It's, uh, you know, when it comes to the A's, they're very good. They're very astute at uh, developing starters out of nowhere or or taking other teams' cast-offs, other teams' oft-injured players, and either having the development skills or just like the sheer patience for waiting out injuries and seeing better days. Like they did it with Montas, who has hurt a lot, uh, coming up with the White Sox and afterwards in the immediate aftermath of the trade. Uh, the Todd Frazier trade. Chris Bassett, same thing. Like they waited through a Tommy John surgery with him. Caprillion's been hurt a lot. I'm not, I don't know a whole lot about Irvin's background, but they're really good at just either keeping guys healthy, figuring out what, you know, had them hurts or just being able to, uh, you know, pick up guys when they're uh, buying low and then just investing the time to dust them off. (laughs) And I think uh, Bassett right now is is really the, the guy I look at just, he's been, Basically, last 22 starts, I'm looking at his numbers. Uh, sub-3 ERA, he's 12-1, uh, 146 strikeouts over 138 innings. We've seen him being uh, death on righties, and the White Sox have a few different ways to uh, offer different looks uh, against right-handed pitching the way that they didn't have last year when he faced them uh, in the wildcard series. So it would be nice to see them have an answer for Bassett because, like, should these teams meet again in the postseason? Like, that's a very... Uh, we saw how exploitable that was last year in the postseason. It'd be nice to kind of close that hole, uh, that, that gap a little bit, and make teams work a little harder. I guess the good news is that the Lance Lynn trade is basically, I think for me, uh, made Bassett's success like just a a cool story, but kind of remove the sting from the Jeff Samarja trade. <laughs> like I think having Semyon move on, having Bassett being the one guy left, now having a successful rental starter acquisition, living up to the hype and delivering what they thought and being extendable, I think has more or less made that Bassett trade a thing of the past. And now just it, it's more of a, I, I think he's motivated. Like he said that he's motivated to stick it to the White Sox every time he faces them. But I think looking at it the other way, I think it's a new enough era for the White Sox to where he's just a guy, a good guy, but uh, but uh, just uh, an opponent. Yeah, I agree with you, and I, and I think it is a cool story that he has turned into the pitcher that he has because I think pretty much no one saw it coming. I would imagine even up to and including a lot of people in the A's organization would be surprised, you know, if eight years ago when that trade happened or or however many years ago it was, uh, that he turned into an all-star. I will say it's pretty insane that the White Sox traded two future all-stars for a replacement-level season of Jeff Jeff Sabarja. I think as much as that deal is in the past, boy, that is... If it weren't for the Tatis trade, that would be a worst-case scenario trade right there, so... And in fairness to Samarja, it was a thoroughly pedestrian season. Above replacement level, but pedestrian. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. (laughs) It was 200-plus innings, so you have to give him some credit for that. But, yeah, he did not... He also led the the league in runs allowed. Yeah, (laughs) it's like, yeah, he just... He he helped, but not in the way the White Sox needed. Right, yeah. Okay. In fairness, although... You know, the guy made like a hundred million dollars in his career. I don't know how much fairness he needs yeah. from me. Um, but anyway, yes, it, it it will be uh it would be nice to see the White Sox hang some runs on Bassett, I think. Uh and it would be reassuring in case the A's are a 
playoff opponent. And that brings us actually to a P.O. Sox question uh, that we're going to stick in right here from A.J. Mithin on Patreon. And he's asking you, Jim, my rough math has the Sox at 5-14 and 14 against contending AL teams, the Yankees, Rays, Astros, and Red Sox. Is this a recoverable trend? What do we need to see against Oakland? I think with with the injuries the White Sox have suffered and with them not fielding their 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 A team, you know, by and large, like with having Jimenez out and Robert out and and them both coming back recently in time for Grandal to be out and now having Rodon out and and uh just injuries here and there like theoretically the White Sox can field a full strength team and face these, you know, the postseason teams anew and feel like uh, you can throw out what happened before. Like, I think there is that possibility to where just the White Sox will be a, you know, maybe not a well-oiled machine because I don't think they, you know, kind of, they had the tendency to lose at bats quickly <laughs> the way that uh, an aggressive team does. But they also have the potential of just being a different looking team. Uh, and, and so like, you know, if they say lose three out of four to Oakland while, um, you know, Lopez has to start a game, and while Robert has to take days off and angles hurt and just, they don't, they still don't have like their, their full array of depth. Like maybe you can wave that away, but I think it's important on some level, like to have individuals playing well. Like I think the way they played the Yankees, even though they lost two out of three is encouraging. Like they had that one, you know, basically when you look at the season series at the Yankees, uh, they had that one game, they lost to Garrett Cole, seven, nothing, but the other games have been close, winnable, uh, they didn't get it done. Uh, yeah, three of them were decided by a walk-off, including one they won. Uh, but the other games were winnable. They just either were a little bit short on talent or in the case of Sunday, they got in their own way. And Cesar Hernandez having his worst game by far as a White Sox. Uh, you know, having Liam Hendricks blowing a save the uh, or blowing a uh, taking loss the day before. Just like there were some blips uh, that you might not count on happening again. So... Uh, you know, you, moral victories don't count in the win column, but I think it's enough to say like they have the talent, like they're not being outclassed here. And I think it's the same thing with uh, this Oakland series is if they have enough guys looking right, like if Jimenez has a good series, if Robert is looking like he's, you know, not taking steps backward um, as he gets, you know, used to playing every day again. Uh, if uh, Lance Lynn and, and you know, looks like Lance Lynn, if Dallas Keuchel has a, a decent start in a big ballpark, like this, these are things I'm kind of looking at in terms of just like team health. And with the cushion that they have, you know, 10 game cushion in the AL Central, like this is the luxury of not being able to freak out and, and having had to freak out at so many White Sox pseudo contenders, hoping that they can hang on and, and just, you know, feeling the, uh, the just impact of every blown save, every bad inning and error, every extra out. I'm enjoying this case where Liam Hendricks can look bad for two consecutive games and not really feel it, uh, you know, resonate in my nervous system yet. So I'm I'm taking that to, uh, as far as I can. I think I'm in the position right now where I don't know about you, but I'm kind of. I think this is the most excited or interested, I should say, I've been in seeing a Reynaldo Lopez start. Uh, seeing how far he can go, seeing what he looks like, because he looks like the Lopez of old, which is probably worse than he was in 2018, but better than he's looked since then. And and I'm just kind of curious what that means. Yeah, I think so. I think it's, it's been 
actually kind of an ideal way to reintroduce him back to the roster, I think, um, with sort of being the long man. Like, like, not by plan, just by accident of like, oh, he gets some innings under his belt. He can build on any confidence he had from AAA, but now Ethan Katz is there, Lucas Giolito's there maybe to help him along. I, I think they're close to now he's getting some starts. Now he's building up a little bit of endurance. Um, yeah, I think I, I'm certainly encouraged. I mean, just the fact that he's been getting major league hitters out is a vast improvement With over strikeouts. where, yeah, where where he what has been the last couple of seasons. So it's it's certainly um, very encouraging. I don't know that I'd pencil him in for a spot on the playoff roster just yet, but this will be definitely a good test for him because the A's have some some great bats as well. And that's the kind of thing you can look forward to with a 10-game cushion. Yeah, no kidding. A Lopez kidding. start against yeah. a contender. Yeah, and I think I'm with you more generally as well. As like I'm not necessarily sweating right now any sort of record against these great teams, particularly thinking about like when they first played the Rays and the Astros. Those lineups were kind of like Swiss cheese with, mm-hmm. with the number of guys who were on the IL. Um, so I think the playoff team is going to be different in one way or another. And it certainly would be nice if they just kind of like everything clicked in and the team became a buzzsaw for these last six weeks. But if it doesn't happen, as long as they're not, as long as the team is healthy um, and, and it's not dysfunctional in any way, I think that the, the game to game results of these series are kind of immaterial to the ultimate goals of the team. Um, but that being said, I mean, do you have a feeling on how the series is going to turn out? Would you make a prediction? It feels like a split. I, I'm encouraged by the way the White Sox top of the order is coming back. Like Abreu is looking like August Abreu, which we've talked about in the show, just being uh, uh, when he kind of clicks into a God form. And, you know, Anderson's getting on base and making things happen. Jimenez is looking pretty good, um, especially given the amount of rust. Like I thought it'd take him longer to... Uh, be making an impact with his contact, but it's he's pretty much all the way back. Roberts had some moments, so it seems like the name brand guys are getting the job done, assuming Hernandez can bounce back and, and you know, resume getting on base once or twice a game and, and not commit <laughs> three errors in the game at second base. You know, you'd like to see more from Moncada, just you're still waiting for him to, to click into place. I think he's kind of the one missing link from that uh, core element of the lineup but otherwise the guys we hoped would take a step up in august and take the load off those fluky performances they'd been receiving from the bottom of the order i think are mostly showing up and having good at bats uh they're they're not really you know maybe tim anderson sometimes has like the one pitch at bat you don't like seeing when it doesn't work out but then he has the one pitch at bat where you like seeing the results so (laughs) there requires an element of trust there but you know Bray's having better at bats menez is having better at bats they don't seem to be jumping out of their shoes. They're letting the game come to them. So I'm hoping to see more of that. And so that's why I think a split is attainable. Yeah. And and the lineup really has a different feel to it when Abreu and Jimenez are both locked in in the middle of the order. I mean, you you look forward to getting to that part of the lineup, um, which is really fun. Um, and it, it's fun to see those guys back. I don't think... I realized how much I missed Aloy watching Aloy play baseball and be part of this team because he had the, like that raw power dynamic is yeah. is pretty singular. Yeah. I think, you know, we, maybe we, we 
didn't miss a lawyer or miss him enough. Well, partially because the White Sox did so well in his absence. I think if the White Sox were like hovering around 500, he'd say like, man, can't wait for him to get back. But also like having Andrew Vaughn playing left field really well and, and way better than Jimenez did um, made it easier to, uh, I guess, think about his shortcomings more than what he offers when he's uh, in, in, in full, when he has like the full capabilities of his powers at the plates. But seeing him come back and pretty much regain those powers and then play a left field that is largely incident-free, I think has made it a lot easier to uh, to feel great about him again and, and and realize like, oh yeah, this is this is fun. And, and this is a, a fun that doesn't come with qualifiers. Like, yeah, he's fun until the top of the inning shows up and you have to see him in left or, you know, that, that sort of thing. Like he, you're, right now, the way he's playing is, a reliable left field seems to be communicating well, uh, calling infielders off, um, you know, not deferring to, you know, he still defers like Lewis Robert, but it's not like in a comical uh, self-effacing way. It's more like he, he, I think he's conducting himself like a little bit more confidently and a little bit more, I, I guess like he's saving the physical humor for other areas that I think are more welcome. <laughs> I think when it comes to left field, I think he needs to be more assertive out there and, uh, and not uh, you know play hammock with the uh, you know left field netting. <laughs> he just needs to. I think that's a case where he needs to kind of ratchet down the uh, the goofiness and just you know prove that he's a professional. Maybe that's something that Andrew Vaughn's uh, defense out there maybe has inspired him to do is is if not take it a bit more seriously because I doubt I, I, or I'm pretty sure that the work he puts in is serious. But make sure that that seriousness is reflected until he gains the confidence of everybody yeah I think yeah I it's just great to have him back and I think that with how well Vaughn played out there I think and now with how well Vaughn is hitting as well I think if if he had missed too much more time you would have started seeing people talk about him as maybe a trade candidate of like okay he can't play outfield we have too many corner bats Berger and Sheets have both been productive like where does Aloy go and then he comes back and you see just the him at the plate and and when he gets a hold of one and you think like Oh wait, yeah, that's right. This guy is is totally different. <laughs> this is like a different yeah. kind of hitter and one that a lineup needs to be built around, you know, not going to shop him for something else, I think. So He's not fungible. Yeah, exactly. Um so it's been fun. It's been it's been very fun to watch even with the results uh this weekend. Maybe not quite as good as we hoped, but um we all have the playoffs to look forward to, and and I think let's go on to P.O. Sox right now because we have some questions related to that and about roster optimization for the playoffs. Um, so let's hit that P.O. Sox intro. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Okay, well, thank you very much. That's right. This is P.O. Socks, where we, or more specifically Jim, answer your questions about everything White socks. And so uh, starting off the question here, we have a question from Rodney W. Schmissur of Patreon. Hope I got your name right, Rodney, or something close. Um, Rodney's question is, Jim, 
I know the Yankees have historically excelled at running up pitch counts for opposing starters to dip into slash run through bullpens. That said, I've never quite seen a staff so reluctant to challenge hitters or pitch to weak contact and consistently racking up 90 to 100 pitches in only four or five innings of work. Cease is culprit number one, but Gio today, Sunday, put him to shame. Is this a blip? Is this Cat's method, or can Cat's make mental adjustments to the staff to get them to trust their stuff? I think, you know, the extent of it is a blip. It is something the Yankees do well. It's, uh, I I think, a strength of theirs uh, over the years, just having those lineups that make pitchers sweat. Um, And and I think when it comes to, like, nibbling or the idea of, like, throwing strikes, challenging hitters, that's something easier said than done, or it's something you want to see them do until you don't. Like when it comes to Aaron Judge and leaving him fastballs over the plate, they challenged him. Uh, not in a way that uh, did them any good, but you know, that's a case where, you know, when you say throw strikes or why can't you throw strikes, make him put the ball in play. And sometimes they, they do any, that's the last thing you wanted to see. So with Cease, I think it's a mechanical thing. Like when he's, trying to you know, throw put away breaking balls and he's yanking it into the left hand of the batter's box. I mean, that's something he's battling and, and an ongoing war with him. And I think he does a better job of getting out of it eventually, but I still think it takes some innings at a time in order to right himself. Giolito, I think it comes down more to the lack of power he had in his fastball early on. Like he seemed to be shaking his arm out a lot, which is part of the reason why I wanted to see maybe an early hook for him, just precautionary, but the velocity did seem to rally later and the changeup rallied. But without that good fastball velocity or his good fastball velocity paired with a changeup that wasn't on point, like they hit a lot of foul balls, like eight foul balls in the first inning alone. I think it was uh, 12 after two, like they made him work. Uh, Brett Gardner drew, uh, drew a double digit pitch walk. <laughs> he was trying to get soft contact, but the soft contact was going in foul territory. So that's a case where it was just a pitcher who wasn't at the top of his game in a lineup that's good enough, disciplined enough, uh, talented enough to just spoil things until they can get a pitch either to drive or get to four balls. So, um, yeah, that's a case where that is that is Yankee-specific. Keuchel, he needs to uh, uh, nibble. That's kind of his thing. Like, he gets punished, especially with his cutter, trying to ride it up in the zone. Like, he, he needs to miss inside more than over the plate. Uh, Lynn just sometimes seems to... Um, you know, he doesn't really nibble so much as he just has fastballs going different directions and sometimes seems like he doesn't exactly know how much it's going to move. So, so, uh, his, uh, his misses tend to be more bigger misses than nibbling. It tends to be just more like getting on the side of it, cutting it too much, etc. but it doesn't seem to be like a mindset thing. So by and large, I think you're just seeing some inconsistencies of mechanics in the case of Cease uh, inconsistency in power with Giolito. And then when it comes to like a guy like Heichel, he just needs to live on that line and, and generally succeeds well enough to be an average starter. I don't think he's the impact starter. That's the White Sox thought they were getting and, and thought like might be an equivalent or like a half grade below, say a Zach Wheeler. But, uh, you know, he's been fine. He helps cross days off the calendar. And, and that's more or less where he is right now, uh, you know, with his you know high eighties velocity. So Sometimes tough to watch, but I think, you know, uh, when it comes to the postseason, uh, I, I think, you know, the idea is having Carlos Rodon back to where he, you know, when he's at the top of his game, when he's you know coming out, throwing 94, gets 99, he's got that slider. He can attack hitters and miss in the strike zone and, and not hurt the way that like Giolito can, 
when he's when he's throwing in the low 90s can get hurt or the way like uh you know dallas keichel can so hopefully you know when we talk about rodan coming back in toronto uh in a week that we'll see that guy who feels like a postseason rotation guy no matter the opponent i think i'll just add that you know, as far as it being philosophical related to Ethan Katz, I think you can look at the bullpen and see that that is certainly not how they approach their work. You know, so I think it's, if anything, they're, as, like we talked about with Liam Hendricks, like getting too much of the zone at times. Um, and like Jim said, with, with those judge homers. So I think it is pitcher to pitcher and and hopefully is something uh, that will pass just as we get closer to the playoffs and guys get more locked in as well. Uh, but thank you for your question, Rodney. Um, our next question comes from Mark Sambor, also from Patreon. And Jim, the question is, with the commanding lead in the AL Central, should the Sox be stretching out Garrett Crochet in the majors or AAA the next 45 days to get a feel for whether Crochet can be a starter? Right now, he's on pace for about 50 innings, maybe towards 60 if he uh, you know, pitches in the postseason at all. You know, perhaps he can even get to like 60, 70, depending if they do stretch him out. You know, look at him had more as like a two-plus inning guy, especially if like right now Lopez in the rotation, they might have a need for a longer reliever, uh, filling in that two- to three-inning role the way that uh, Lopez did and the way that Kopech seems too good for right now. So... There does seem to be an opportunity to stretch him out a little bit. I, I'm still skeptical when it comes to his um, ultimate future, like his ability to start. Like the fastball right now is down to like 96, 98 when it was 101 before. And it's still a little bit weird to me that everybody's kind of accepted. I think fortunately his results have been good enough to where it's not that big of a concern. Like you don't feel like he's, you know, he needs all of his velocity to stick in the big leagues. Like he's, he's, he's just fine as a reliever right now, as is right now. I, I think he's like a mid leverage reliever. We've seen him show up in the extra innings, uh, especially the man on second. And he's not necessarily the best guy for that because his ability to miss bats kind of comes and goes depending on how quickly or how long it takes him to get a feel for a slider. Um, I just wonder like when it comes to stretching him out, like, can he lose more velocity? Will he lose more velocity? Like right now, or, or I would say like last year when we were thinking about it, like if he's hitting like a hundred, you know, sitting 99 to 101 and we're thinking about like, well, the White Sox can stretch him out. Like we thought, oh, maybe he'd be 96 then, 98 then when he has to go five to six innings and he can still succeed with that. But if he's throwing 96 to 98 in bullpen now, does he lose two to three ticks going to you know, you're trying to cover five to six innings. Uh, how much does that uh, play up his lack of like command over control? Like he's throwing strikes. He misses still by quite a bit sometimes, but he's got the, his fastball still seems to have enough hop on it. The slider is still enough of a threat to where hitters can't get too comfortable about it. So, uh, you know, he's got some variety to him, but I just wonder if he loses two more ticks in order to cover five to six innings, are the flaws like the the lack of like a a really the changeup's weird because it's 91 miles per hour like can the 91 mile per hour changeup or like a, a five mile per hour difference between fastball and changeup survive over the course of five innings? Can uh, you know the lack of strike zone command? Can the will the slider retain its sharpness after uh, you know 60 70 pitches? Like that's what I'm kind of doubtful about. So if they kept him in the bullpen the entire time in the role he's currently in. 
except for maybe like you know pitching two more two innings more often than not. I think it'd be fine. Like I don't think it'd be a missed opportunity, but I think while Lopez is out, if Larusa wanted to stretch him out two to three just to see what it looks like, see what the diminishing returns are, as a hint or offering some clues to how they might assign him in uh, 2022. Um, I, that might be a good use of time just because uh, they can still use those innings in, in, in the bullpen, especially like say if starts get shorter for good reasons, like wanting to give guys, uh, yeah, save guys uh, 20 pitches when there's a big lead or for reasons like Lopez is starting or Keuchel starting and they're just not covering five innings the way you'd like. Let me ask you this though. I I'm, I agree with you. I don't think that they sh- the White Sox should necessarily be stretching Crochet out as a starter. Um, although it would be interesting to see him more work two innings more frequently. But the the your comments about the velocity made me think because I agree with you. He is going to be need to be throwing hard as a starter to be effective. But if the hundred miles per hour doesn't come back in the bullpen and then Garrett Crochet is just a mid-leverage reliever you've wasted your first round pick on Cody Hoyer right who was a seventh or eighth round pick I just wonder what the Mm -hmm. I feel like they almost have to try him as a starter if the 100 miles per hour doesn't come back because then your backup plan is is screwed you don't have a high leverage closer instead you have a guy who a left lefty arm who can throw 98 which is good and useful but not what you are aiming for when you take a guy in the first round yeah or you know they could trade him the way they traded magical like cash him in for something better you know something that's uh, less redundant in their system with aaron bummer looking like he's back and you don't need like a lockdown lefty or lever like it is an opportunity to maybe try to sell a guy who's uh, you know, I would say like, you're not selling high. Cause maybe like high would be if he was throwing a hundred, but he's good enough and relievers are valued. So maybe there's an opportunity there to kind of just use him to reallocate some resources and bring in some different talent. Yeah. True enough. True enough. And the white Sox will have spots to fill, uh, in the off season and next year at the trade line, Ted line. So we'll, we'll see where Garrett Crochet ends up, but thank you, Mark, for the question. Um, our next PO Sox question comes from as in rec on Patreon. And his question is this season, Adam Engel has been both brilliant and fragile. How much is his health a key for a successful postseason? I think it depends on the statuses of, you know, right now they're their frontline outfield of, of Eloy and, and Robert and Vaughn. Like if Robert comes back all the way, it looks like, you know, basically has all the range or most of his range in center field and has the kind of plate improved plate coverage he'd shown over the first month with some you know, double digit home run power then you have Eloy looking like Eloy with a little bit better of a glove and left and Vaughn just continuing to learn and grow and right. I think, you know, angle at that point becomes a luxury because you're not going to be pinch hitting for those guys. You're not going to, you know, maybe you'd want one of them as a DH and then you can put angle in, but you know, maybe at that point, depending on the ground all state, like you'd have him as a DH, like if his knees, not all the way back, or, you know, there, maybe Gavin Sheets comes back and, you know, they add him as the 20th man. And suddenly he looks like he solved the issues with like breaking balls down in the zone, the way that he was kind of struggling with 
at the end of his uh, his first stint. Like there are a few ways they can go with DH. To right now, he's kind of a luxury, but. Should one of those guys be out, I think we do see the shortcomings of having, you know, the the lefties like uh, Brian Goodwin and Jake Lamb being like the the replacements. Because when you have a lefty reliever come in, you really don't like seeing them at the plate. And you really don't have anybody better to go to. You might have Billy Hamilton, but he's not going to be the bat you want. So when, you know, they don't have that frontline left to right outfield they have, that's where I think you feel Angle's absence a lot more acutely to where all of a sudden he is necessary. So it's a fine line between being able to get by without him and then all of a sudden like, oh man, it'd be great to see him. So ultimately, yeah, I think like on a scale of like needs, say from like one to 10, I would say like he's like a seven. Like if the games break right and, and the uh, starting lineup just doesn't need the substitutions uh, the way, it's almost like a closer in a way. Like if the lineup does its job um, and, and the situations are like just, you need the best guys to come through and it doesn't come, yeah, and the situation doesn't hinge on an outfield substitution, then you might not realize angles on the roster. But any other situation besides that, he's very, uh, very integral to what they want to do as an offense, as a lineup. So it's a, it's, it's a fine line to walk. So I think the good news is that the White Sox, you know, when they have their left, right outfield right now and them needing at bats, like especially Jimenez and Robert, like you can uh, give angle lots of time. The good news is angles miss some time. And when he's come back, he's looked great. Like he hasn't looked like he's needed at bats to come back or, or, or time to get in the swing of things. So hopefully that continues. And, should he need to miss weeks here and there or, or take a short ride on the IL again just to uh, rest his legs, he might be able to get by with that and everybody might be better for it. Yeah, it will certainly be nice to have him. Hopefully he can get all the way back and, and these kind of injuries don't plague him for the rest of the season because it's also just been nice watching him grow as a player and become this become one of those these pieces from the rebuild that we were always talking about like oh you need to have you need to be able to develop cost effective players to plug holes on your roster and there hasn't really been a better example of that developed by the White Sox than Adam Angle so it would be nice to have him for the playoff run most definitely yeah. well, well I was thinking I just had a thought like thinking about our Oakland conversation and and kind of marveling at the way Oakland is able to dust guys off like if the White Sox ditched Angle, it feels like he would end up on Oakland and having the season he'd be having with the A's. Yeah. Oh, like absolutely. That's a case where the White Sox just, uh, yeah, they they uh, they stuck with him one more year, and that's that saved them. <laughs> right. <laughs> We'd be looking From at seeing the... him like turn into this uh, uh, force on both sides of the ball with another team that's so good at doing that. Oh yeah. It, it, we'd be looking at them being like, how did they turn that guy into a hitter? Like he looked so hopeless his first couple of years. Um, so it's very rewarding to see him now with a plan up there, able to execute that plan and be a valuable part of this team. It has been cool for sure. Um, so thank you as in rec for that question. And thank you, everyone, for submitting your P.O. Sox questions uh, to the Sox Machine podcast. That'll do it for P.O. Sox, and that'll just about do it for the episode as well. You guys know all of the good stuff about uh, following Sox Machine on Twitter, and you can follow me on Twitter at Greg Nix Human. Check out the website. Check out what Jim's writing on SoxMachine.com. And, of course, support Sox Machine on Patreon. And, Jim, I think you have a little announcement, right? 
Yes, I can do the uh, do the business stuff and then the announcement. But yeah, on Patreon we have uh, we offer extra content, an ad free site, an ad free show, bonus questions on PO Socks. It's the way to get your uh, ans- uh, questions answered on PO Socks. Plans start for as little as $2 a month. You can check us out at patreon.com slash socks machine. Uh, one of the other perks is that you get uh, first notice of new merch and uh, first dibs. And uh, we did sell out of ball caps right away, but I've uh, we've had the pre-order period for ball caps. And I want to let everybody know that I the shipment of caps is on the way to me from the manufacturer. It should arrive Tuesday or Wednesday, so... Assuming there are no unforeseen delays, I should be able to uh, turn them around and get them in the mail by the end of next week or end of this week, I should say, like by Friday, I should be able to get them all in the mail. So uh, I will keep people posted if that's not the case, you know, either on Twitter or on the site somehow. But right now, if you ordered a cap, be on the lookout for an email with uh, tracking numbers for uh, the shipping because they should be happening uh, by Friday, Saturday at the latest, I have a lot of caps to send out. So we'll see, uh, you know, whether I get, uh, you know, uh, my, my hands ravaged by paper cuts, <laughs> putting together <laughs> all the cardboard boxes, but assuming I make it through. Okay. End of the week, they should be in the mail. We're going to place you on the IL with, uh, finger lacerations, hat lacerations. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I highly recommend being a Patreon supporter. The perks are great. The merch is great. I have a bunch of it, and it is uh, just great to support Josh and Jim and everything they do with the podcast and with the website because it's it's some of the best White Sox stuff out there, uh, period. So definitely do that. Um, and thank you, Jim. Thank you for having me. It's, it's always fun to talk White Sox with you, uh, and this was no different and, and really looking forward to the rest of the season. Yeah, it's great to have you back and great to be talking about a winning team rather than mining for upside and just trying to entertain when there's nothing there. So I'm, I'm glad you're able to uh, you know play a part in it. And uh, anytime you can, we'll be happy to have you back. Yeah, and I, I will happy to be back as well. You guys won't be rid of me. Just one last thing before we go on the topic of a good team instead of a bad team. I had sort of a running joke with uh, my then-girlfriend, now-wife, when I was doing the White Sox wake-up calls about every time they... Every time it was my night to do it, the White Sox would get their butts kicked. Uh, just like I, I recapped some really <laughs> horrific losses, and eventually Beeflo <laughs> from uh, the 108 even tweeted at me, like, just like, I feel like Greg always gets the uh, the blowout losses. Um, so I was told my wife, well, I'm doing the podcast tonight as we were watching the White Sox game, and she's like, they're losing. <laughs> they're not going to win this one now because you agreed to do the podcast. Uh, so it's my fault they lost the finale. That's all I'm saying still worth it yes definitely worth it for me maybe not for other white Sox fans but there you go but thank you guys for listening thank you again jim josh will be back for y'all's midweek Sox machine live on thursday recapping the oakland series so definitely stay tuned for that um but with that for socksmachine.com and for jim i'm greg nix thanks for listening 